do, please reach for a Bible. You'll need to be able to see Mark chapter 14 for the purposes of the next little while. Don't worry if you don't have one yet. There are Bibles by the doors as you came in. Just grab one from the trolley, Mark 14. We're going to read verses 26 all the way through to the end of the chapter. Uh, Last night was fantastic. If you weren't able to come last night, but you can come tonight, you really must come uh, and bring someone with you. And uh, there were lots of powerful moments during the performance, but the moment with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he wrestled with what he was about to go through, was incredibly powerful. And it's that that we're going to read together. Beginning in chapter 14 and verse 26. And when they, that is Jesus and his disciples, had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, and he quotes here from the prophet Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, 
right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither, neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the cock crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the cock crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray together for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty of your word. Thank you for its reliability. Thank you for the way it holds up a mirror to ourselves and wonderfully points us away to the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see the Savior's strength compared with our weakness. In Jesus' name, amen. You just need to believe in yourself. Uh, we hear that a lot today, don't we? Self-belief, self-confidence is one of our uh, culture's answers to life's problems. If you want to be successful and happy, make a good fist of your life, what you really need to do is believe in yourself. But here's the strange thing. Self-belief is, we're told, on the rise, but so, it seems, is anxiety. We're more self-confident and we're more worried than ever. Why is that? Well, perhaps it's partly because there are problems in the world that believing in myself just can't fix. Uh, pandemics and uh, wars in the news and rising bills don't really care about my self-esteem. But there's a deeper issue, and it's me. If I'm honest, I find myself often very disappointing. Don't you find the same? You put your trust in yourself, 
You believe in yourself and yourself lets you down. You find yourself to be unreliable, uneven, unfaithful, disappointing. And if that isn't your experience yet, just give it time. I suspect that's the experience of most of us in this room. And Mark chapter 14 here tells us that that is how it's always been. It's here to teach us to stop believing in ourselves and to start believing in Jesus. We're going to race through the account, telling the story, and then we're going to circle back on two big lessons that we learn here in Mark 14. So let's walk through it in three scenes. Firstly, scene one, an heroic vow, verses 26 to 31, a heroic vow. Fair to say, isn't it, that Peter didn't really suffer from low self-esteem. It takes a great deal of confidence to rebuke the Son of God, as Peter did back in chapter 8. But Peter's self-belief reaches an all-time high here in verses 26 to 31. Uh, having celebrated the Passover meal, which uh, Jesus, we saw last time, has now transformed into a memorial of his coming death, they now move to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus makes a sobering and shocking prediction. The words of the prophet Zechariah, says Jesus, are soon to be fulfilled. The shepherd, verse 27, will be struck, Jesus will be struck, and the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter, not for the first time, is having none of it. Verse 29, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. That's verse 31. Verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. No, Peter, you'll do worse than fall away. You'll deny me, says Jesus, not once, but three times. Peter thinks it's ridiculous. He vehemently denies it. It's impossible. That would never happen. This is serious self-confidence. But the first test of Peter's resolve comes in scene two. Scene two, verse 32 to 52. Not my will, but yours. And so into the garden they go. And most of the disciples are told to pray in one spot and the inner circle. Uh, Peter, James, and John are taken a little further in. And, and it's now that the full horror of the ordeal ahead of him begins to weigh on the Lord Jesus Christ. We find him in deep distress. Remember who this is. This is the one who, remember, slept peacefully in a boat during a storm so wild and furious that hardened fishermen were terrified out of their wits. And when in their panic they wake him, he simply speaks to the storm. And it stops, and he turns to his disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? Storms don't bother him. Vicious and violent opposition can't unsettle him. And the most powerful people in Jerusalem are hunting him down, and he hasn't wavered. To this point, the Lord Jesus has been utterly fearless and unflappable. It's only now, in verse 33, that the unshakable one is shaken. Greatly distressed and troubled, verse 34, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. In John's gospel, we read that he sweat great 
droplets of blood at the prospect of the ordeal. There are all sorts of lessons that Mark would want us to learn from this scene too, but what Mark wants us to see most of all is the true horror of the cross. Jesus calls it this cup there in verse 36. Uh, The cup is a picture from the Old Testament of God's wrath. For example, Isaiah 51 Verse 17, awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. With the cross just hours away, the Lord Jesus here stares down into a cup, bubbling and frothing with the righteous anger of God, the just fury of his Father at the sins of the world, every punishment our sin deserves, the wrath of God filled right to the brim, all of hell and all of its fury, as it were, swirling around at the cross in front of him. The cup I should drink, the cup you should drink, the cup the world should drink for its rebellion against God, poured and prepared for the innocent Lord Jesus. And as he comes face to face with the true horror of the cross, the true horror of what saving people like you and me will mean for him, his humanity cries out for rescue. Verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It is possible, isn't it? If we've been a Christian for many years, perhaps, for the sufferings of the Lord Jesus to become a little too familiar. But over time, his agonies... The agonies he suffered to save us might become for us a small thing, something to move beyond to something else. And Mark wants us here to stop and look at the Lord Jesus. It was not a small thing he did. It was not a small thing to face the righteous wrath of God and from his own Abba Father. Abba doesn't quite mean daddy. That's probably too childish a word, but it is a deeply intimate word. It's a word nobody else at the time dared use of God because nobody else had the kind of relationship with God that Jesus uniquely did. He was his father. It wasn't a small thing for the Lord Jesus to face the wrath of his Abba father. It wasn't a small thing to pay for our sin. And yet, Staring into the cup of God's wrath, with his inner man in turmoil at the prospect, Jesus prays some of the most heroic and humanity-loving words in all of history, verse 36, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is strength. This is love. This is heroism. This is astonishing love for sinful people like us. And meanwhile, what's the heroic Peter doing as his Lord wrestles in prayer? Have a look, verse 37. Jesus finds him and the rest asleep. It happens again in verse 40 and then again in verse 41. The man who said he would be prepared to die for his Lord isn't even able to stay awake for his Lord. And when Jesus, uh, Judas sorry, arrives with an armed mob, how do the disciples live up to their earlier confidence? We'll never, we'll never leave you, we'll never forsake you. Verse 50, 
and they all left him and fled. One, we're told, verse 51, even fled naked, so desperate to get away. And so only Peter is left following his Lord at a distance. Scene three, two trials. Verses 53 to 72. The point of verses 53 to 72 is made by its structure. Mark could have kept Peter's story and Jesus' story here completely separate, but he chooses instead to weave them together, happening as they were at the same time. See that with me? Uh, Verse 53 is about Jesus, and then verse 54, notice, is about Peter. And then we're back to Jesus from verse 55 through to verse 65. And then back to Peter, verses 66 to 72. It's a sort of a split screen. Uh, uh, Filmmakers use this kind of technique. Mark is here inviting us to compare and contrast two possible heroes of the story. Both facing a, a sort of trial in their own way. Both ask questions, both put under some kind of pressure that Jesus trial is inside the high priest's house it's an intimidating place in front of intimidating people have a look verse 53 all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together they're all there all of his enemies and in a fair trial evidence comes before the verdict here the order notice is reversed they've already reached a verdict of death now all they need to do is to find a way to justify it they need to find a verdict The problem is the witnesses can't agree with each other. Their accusations are so shambolic and all over over the place, Jesus doesn't even dignify them with a response. The moment he does speak is when the big question comes. We've seen, haven't we, how Jesus' identity has been shrouded in secrecy for a while now. He's told people not to spread the message in full before they fully understand it, before the time comes, before the cross is clear, but now the cross is looming and the time has come to speak plainly. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? says the high priest. And Jesus says, verse 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We've heard Jesus use this title, haven't we, over and over again in Mark. The Son of Man, remember, was the figure that the, that the prophet Daniel saw in a vision centuries earlier. He saw a man receiving from God divine glory and honor honor and power, authority and dominion. This is the figure who would have the final word on human history. Every eye would one day see the Son of Man coming in heavenly glory. Every knee would bow, every tongue would answer to him. Can you see the irony then here? Who's really on trial? Where does the real authority lie in the high priest's house? As the son of man with God's authority, the Lord Jesus had the power and the authority to destroy this corrupt high priest and his corrupt system. And yet the glorious son of man, the one who calms storms with his voice, stands meekly as the high priest in terrible hypocrisy tears his clothes And the leaders of Israel line up to spit in the face of the Lord Jesus and punch him and mock him and hand him over to die. Peter's trial goes quite differently, doesn't it? Out in the courtyard. Did you notice who his accuser is in verse 66? Just one of the servant girls of the high priest, the other end of the social spectrum, the spectrum of status. And she isn't initially even really accusing him, is she? Just observing, verse 67 Oh, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. 
Now here is Peter's great moment. Here's his opportunity to make good on his vow. Here's his chance to stand with his Savior, to take up his cross and follow Jesus as he's promised to do, to be unashamed to bear the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 68, but he denied it. I neither know nor understand what you mean. He denies it again, and by the third denial there in verse 71, Peter is calling curses down on himself, swearing on anything and everything that not only is he not a follower of the condemned man, he's never met him. And it's only when the cock crows for sunrise that Peter remembers what Jesus had said, verse 72, and he broke down and wept. So, two lessons. First, the sinner's weakness. We began by talking about our culture's love of self-confidence, and it's easy, isn't it, to see and feel its appeal. Uh, who doesn't want to be the hero of their own story, to get to the end of their lives and proudly say, I did it my way. It's why so many people choose that at their funeral. We love to tell stories that present ourselves in the best possible light. We like people to be impressed with us. We like the thought that we're strong enough, we're tough enough, we're good enough. But the Bible says over and over again that in all sorts of ways, we're not. Mark compiled this account, but it's widely believed that his main source of material was Peter. Just think about that. Peter made sure that the events of chapter 14 were included in detail in the New Testament. We don't know how that conversation went. You know, Mark, make sure you include my denials in, in your account. Peter, are you sure? All of it. You want, you want me to include the bit where you promised never to deny Jesus, the bit where you fell asleep in the garden, the bit where you called down curses on yourself, swearing you'd never met him? You want me to include all of that? Yet, yeah, Mark, you must. I could keep it anonymous, Peter. I do that elsewhere. I don't have to give your name, no, you, you, need to give your, you need to give my name, you need to let them know. They need to know what I said and what I did. Incidentally, some people think that the young man who ran away naked was Mark himself. Perhaps we could imagine Peter saying, yes, and Mark, make sure you include that bit too. Why? Because Peter wants us not to make his mistake not to be deluded about our own goodness or our own strength or our own loyalty when it comes to following the Lord Jesus. You know, becoming a Christian isn't like sitting a job interview. We don't come to the Lord Jesus with a long list of reasons he should pick us for the team or employ us in the company. We don't come with a long CV of our past successes, all the reason, reasons he'd be lucky to have us. Becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus means admitting that we're not strong, we're weak. We're not good, we're bad. That we're too weak, we're too sinful to be the hero. Now, all we bring to the Lord Jesus when we first become a Christian is our sin and our need of him. We say to him, I, I don't believe in myself anymore. I'm giving myself a vote of no confidence. I believe in you. That's how it begins. That's how it continues. 
Didn't you find yourself often letting him down as a Christian? Doesn't it feel worse that you do it because you're a Christian? Since you're a Christian? We'll sing words of commitment in church on a Sunday about all the great things we're going to do, and then we'll forget them on a Monday. We'll vow to be brave and bold for the gospel, and then we'll distance ourselves from that same gospel when the opportunity comes. Christian, don't you find yourself disappointing? And for all that Peter gets wrong here, in verse 72, he gets something very right, doesn't he? Verse 72, when he sees what he's done, he weeps. Christian, are you heartbroken over the weakness of your loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ? Our weak devotion to the one who gave his life for us. And of course, we do grow as we go on in the Christian life. But we don't grow in self-confidence. We don't grow in self-belief. In fact, as we go on, we believe in ourselves less and less. We see more and more our own sin and weakness, don't we? But we believe more and more in the only one strong enough to be the true hero of our story. And that's the second and final lesson, the Savior's strength. You know, from here on, uh, really, Peter and the disciples disappear from the story and only Jesus is left. And that's the point, isn't it? The hero of this story is him. Only he trusts his father in prayer. Only he submits to his father's will. Only he lets himself be taken by sinful men. Only he stands firm under trial. Only he goes to the cross and drains the cup of God's righteous anger in full, right down to the dregs, all of it, every last drop, to save weak and sinful people like us. Don't you find the Lord Jesus so deeply impressive? He is in total control. He's not surprised by his disciples' weakness. Did you notice that? Isn't that encouraging? He knows how weak and how sinful and disloyal and unfaithful they're going to prove to be, and he dies for them anyway. Think about that. Think about you. The Lord Jesus knew full well how unimpressive a disciple you would prove to be, how unimpressive I would prove to be, how I'd let him down and how I'd try to play it safe, how I'd fall into old bad habits, how I'd distance myself from him when it mattered and try to keep my head down and he died for me anyway in fact that's why he died for me that's why he died for you he didn't die for you despite your sin he died because of your sin we started our service with romans 5 verse 8 let me read you a few verses before in the run-up to it for while we were still weak at the right time christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, he didn't die for you because you're strong, but because you're weak. He didn't die for you because you're good, but because you're bad. And your sinfulness and your weakness doesn't diminish his love for you. It draws it out. He died for you knowing that you would let him down regularly, even after becoming a Christian. He knew you, he knows you, and he died for you willingly. And if he died for you at your worst, when you were dead in sin, dead set on rebellion, ears blocked and heart hardened, what makes you think he's going to give up on you now? 
Peter would go on to write a couple of letters in the New Testament, as you might know. Let me read a, a few verses from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. Here's what Peter says, writing to Christians. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at that last verse. Do you hear that? What's he saying? He's saying that the Christian is being guarded by the Lord Jesus, being kept safe for their future inheritance to come. How does Peter know that to be true? How does he know that God will keep him right up until the end? Because in Mark chapter 14, Jesus loved him at his worst. Christian, the Lord Jesus has died for the very worst version of you. He died for you in all of your weakness and sinfulness and disloyalty and unfaithfulness. And having died for you, he's not giving up on you now. He will hold you fast. And at the end of your life, when in all your weakness you make it to the gates of glory, you're going to know for sure the hero of your story is him. Next Sunday, we're having a baptism service. And everybody being baptized is going to pr produce a summary of their Christian life so far. They'll encourage us with it. And we give one big piece of advice to each of them. We say, make it clear that Jesus is the hero. And that's not just advice for baptism. That's for every day of the Christian life. Make it clear to anyone and everyone that the hero of your story can never be you, that all the glory and the honor in your life belongs to the one who saw you in all of your sin and all of your weakness and loved you and went to the cross for you. We don't believe in ourselves. We believe in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge once again that all we can offer you in and of ourselves is our sin and our shame. We want to say sorry for the times that we've failed you, even knowing what we know about the Lord Jesus, even with all the help of your Holy Spirit, we've still managed to fail you and let you down. We're sorry. We thank you that Christ has never let us down and that he went with determination to the cross to save us from our sin. And we pray that in the days to come, you would help us to stop believing in ourselves and to put our, all our trust and confidence in him and show the world that the hero of our story is Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing together in celebration of the love of the Lord Jesus for us.